Turning your Bibles to two openings of Scripture, First Mark chapter 11, and then uh, also Proverbs chapter 4. We've said numerous times that the four Gospels contain 19 individual cases of healing. Now, it seems like there's more than that to us, perhaps, because some of the uh, Gospel writers include some of the same stories or same events. And that doesn't include the times where it talks about the multitudes being healed or even groups like the ten lepers who were healed as they went on their way to uh, show themselves to the priest at Jesus' command. But there are 19 individual cases of healing in the four Gospels. Now, we know certainly that there were a lot more than that, uh, more people than that that were healed. John said when he was writing to the church, he said, if everything Jesus said and did was written down, the world itself couldn't contain the books. Well, then we would have to understand that that would mean a lot more people were healed than what we have record of. But in these 19 individual cases of healing or healing events, it must be a complete picture. The information contained in those 19 individual cases must give us a full and complete picture of the healing ministry of Jesus, which means that as many of the other people that aren't recorded might have been healed, they were not healed in such a different manner or otherwise so that the, the Bible provides for us a complete picture. Now, of those 19 individual cases of healing in the four Gospels, 13 of them specifically, the healing that came to them was credited to their faith. Now, if Jesus, we know also that when Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth, this is recorded in Luke chapter 4 and Mark chapter 6. When Jesus went to his own hometown in Nazareth, the Bible says that he could there do no mighty work. He went into the town proclaiming that he was anointed to heal. He had already been to Capernaum and done many signs and wonders in Capernaum. Because when he's talking to the people, he says, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that you want me to perform the same miracles and the same healings that you heard of me in Capernaum. Well, if he had to have already been there and had to have already performed healings and miracles. But they wouldn't believe. They refused to believe because they thought they knew him. They thought they knew where he was from because he grew up as a little boy in the town of Nazareth. They thought they knew everything about him. They didn't see anything special about him to justify the claims that he was making about being anointed to heal. And so it says in Mark chapter 6 and verse 5, and he could there, talking about his own hometown of Nazareth, he could there do no mighty work. It doesn't say that he wouldn't. It says he couldn't. Now, I know it's contrary to a lot of people's thought that anything would be impossible to Jesus. I know that the idea that there was something, anything that he could not do, that's going to plow crossways with some people's doctrine. I understand that. But that's what the Bible says. The Bible says he could there do no mighty work. The only thing he was able to do is lay his hand on a few folks with minor ailments and get them healed. But it says he marveled at their unbelief. He marveled at their unbelief. Well, if faith was necessary on the part of the recipient, in the majority of cases of healing that we have record of in the four Gospels, if faith was necessary to receive healing, the healing power of God from Jesus then why would we not expect or understand that healing is required in us in our day too? Uh, that faith is required in order to activate the healing power of God in our day. 
if it took faith in Jesus' day, Jesus who had the Spirit of God without measure, if it took faith on the part of the recipients to receive the healing power of God for him, why would we expect it to be any different for us? So, that's why we put such an emphasis on faith, specifically faith for healing, in these healing school services. Mark chapter 11, Jesus has cursed the fig tree and the disciples heard the curse that he put on it the day before. He said, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. The next morning they come by and they see the fig tree dried up from the roots. And they ask Jesus about it. Peter calls it into question. And Jesus explains how this miracle took place. Jesus answering said unto them, have faith in God. That's literally have the faith of God. And then he describes what the faith of God or the God kind of faith is like. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now folks, we understand that faith is the, the, the act of believing. We understand that the words faith and believe are interchangeable. And so when it talks about the God kind of faith, it's talking about Jesus is giving us a record and an example of what the faith of God does. We know that this faith of God was what Genesis chapter 1 tells us that God created the worlds with. He spoke the worlds into existence. He spoke the sun into the sky and the moon into the sky. He spoke the stars into the sky. He spoke the dry land to come up from and be separated from the waters that covered the earth. He spoke the animals in existence. Ten times Genesis chapter 1 tells us, and God said, and it was. And then he makes man. He didn't speak man into existence. He made man in his own class of being. He fashioned him with the works of his hand, the Bible says. And then he breathed into him the breath of life, and Adam and Eve became living souls. That shows us a perfect picture of the makeup of man. Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, he said, Now the God of peace sanctify you wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, completely in other words. I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Man is a spirit, he has a soul, and he lives in a body. Now if you'll notice right there in the middle of verse 23, Mark 11, 23, he puts one qualifier, he makes one qualification or one stipulation for this God kind of faith to work. Let's read it again. Jesus said, Verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And here's the qualifier. And shall not doubt in his heart. Shall not doubt in his heart. Shall not doubt in his heart. But shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Folks, notice the emphasis on saying rather than believing. Whosoever shall say unto the mountain, be thou removed and be cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Now look with me over to Proverbs chapter 4, beginning in verse 20. My son, attend to my words. Incline thine ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart from thine eyes. Keep them in the midst of thine heart. For they, my words, are life unto those that find them. Notice there's a discovery process to the word. 
their life unto those that find them, and health to all their flesh. The word of God is health to our flesh. The flesh, the word flesh there is talking about the entire makeup of the physical makeup of man. So the word of God is life unto us who discover it. Discover it as being God's will. Discover it as being a useful tool and weapon to use against the attack of the enemy. Discover it to be the source of all good things. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 1 verse 16. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it, the gospel, the good news, the word of God in other words, for it is the power of God unto salvation. The word salvation that's used there in Romans 1.16 is an all-inclusive word. It's the word sozo, S-O-Z-O in the Greek, and it means rescue, deliverance, to make safe, to make sound, and to heal. Notice here in verse 23 of Proverbs chapter 4, he goes on to say, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Now remember Jesus emphasized in Mark eleven twenty three, 23 that we just looked at. Jesus emphasized the words in our mouth, the words that we speak. He said the God kind of faith was directly tied to our words. Here it's telling us that a part of the discovery process to make the word life unto us who find it and health to all our flesh. A part of that is understanding the spiritual importance of our words. Here where it says, keep your heart with all diligence, it's talking about the spirit of man. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 talks about, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 3 talks about the hidden man of the heart, which is the spirit of man. Well, what's that hidden man of the heart hidden from? It's hidden from the five physical senses. So the hidden man of the heart, or believing with the heart, and living up to the, to the qualifier that Jesus gave us in Mark eleven twenty three, 23, not doubting in our heart, has everything to do with the words that we speak from within ourselves. In other words, not words that we speak according to the things that we can see outside, not according to the things that we feel as a part of the five physical senses, not according to the reasonings of man, but instead according to what the Bible says is God's word to us. You may remember also that in Proverbs chapter 3, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. See, even in the Old Testament, they made a distinction between the mental part of man, the mind of man, and the spirit. Your spirit issues spiritual forces. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of the boundaries of life. If we're going to operate in the things of God, if we're going to take hold of all that God has provided for us through the work of Jesus, his sacrificial work that is, then we're going to have to understand that the forces of life, the forces of healing, the forces of health, the power of God that provides healing for our physical body, that comes from within us. And it's released by our words. Now turn with me over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. Paul's writing to Timothy, who's the pastor of the church at Ephesus, the biggest and the most well-known church of that day. And he says, fight the good fight of faith. Notice there's a fight to faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou also were called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. 
He says, fight the good fight of faith. Now, we talked about this some this morning briefly. But when he says to Timothy, lay hold on eternal life, he can't be saying, Timothy, it's important for you to get saved. We know that Timothy was Paul's son in the faith, his spiritual son. He treats him as a father, much more so than anybody else that traveled with him or worked with him in ministry. He identified with Timothy as his spiritual father. Well, he says, the book of Acts tells us about Timothy, that Timothy had already been saved under Paul's ministry. It tells a story about how Paul brought him to Jerusalem, and since he was not a Jew but a Gentile, they had to go through some specific ceremonial actions to purify himself and so forth. And even at that, there were some places in the temple in Jerusalem where a a Gentile could not go no matter what they did. So we know Timothy was already saved. So what's he talking about laying hold on eternal life? Well, there's more than just the forgiveness of sins. There's more to eternal life than just coming into the family of God. And everything that's included in that salvation, that eternal life that Jesus purchased for us, is accessed and or received by this thing called faith. By this spiritual force called faith. So when Paul tells Timothy to lay hold of eternal life, he's saying every part of eternal life, every aspect of what Jesus purchased for us through his death, burial, and resurrection, every part of that is accessed by faith. And healing is a part of that. According to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, it tells us, looking forward from Isaiah's time, It tells us what the Messiah would do. And it goes like this. It says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace or our prosperity was on him. And with his stripes we were healed. So healing is a part of the work that Jesus accomplished through his substitutionary or sacrificial work on our behalf. Jesus paid the price, the price of the shedding of his blood for physical healing for our bodies just as much as he did to provide us spiritual deliverance through the new birth. It was the same blood of Jesus that was shed for our sicknesses as was shed for our sins. Now let's look at a couple of cases, a couple of instances of uh, healing in Jesus' ministry to get a picture of what belongs to us. Look with me over to to, uh, Mark chapter 5. We'll start with this. Here's a familiar story that greatly illustrates how faith works. Mark chapter 5, verse 25, And a certain woman which had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing better, but rather grew worse. When she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind, and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that virtue or power had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? In other words, they're saying everybody is touching you. Now why is everybody touching him? Well, the Bible tells us that prior to this time where Jesus was in this certain place, this city of Capernaum, it tells us how that there were multitudes of people that were healed by touching Jesus' garment. There were many people that were healed either by the physical touch of Jesus or in some cases where they just came up and touched his garment. 
this woman must have heard something along that line. Notice it says, when she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind. Well, the Bible says in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So if what she heard developed faith in her and the faith that she had gained from what she heard was to touch his garment to receive his healing, her healing, then that means she had to have heard something about people being healed by the physical touch of Jesus or by touching his garment because that's what she did. That's what she had faith for. When she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind for she said, Notice the first thing that happened when faith arrived in her heart based on what she had heard of Jesus. The first thing that happened was she spoke. For she said, if I can just touch his garment, I shall be whole. If I can just touch his garment, I shall be whole. Well, she acted on that and came to where Jesus was and touched him. And sure enough, the healing power of God went out of him and into her. Jesus wants to know who tapped into the power. And the disciples are saying there's nobody, no way we're going to find out one person that touched you. Look at all these people that are pressing against you trying to touch you. They may have heard the same thing that the woman with the issue of blood heard. But one thing's for sure, they didn't let it affect what they did or what they said, and she did. Jesus knew that power had gone out of him, so he knew that there was one certain somebody that touched him in faith. Whereas everybody else is just touching him apparently to see what will happen. Folks, the great tragedy of this story is that only one person was healed. Every person in that crowd, every sick person in that multitude could have been healed. It wasn't like God picked and was in the business of picking and choosing who gets it and who doesn't get it. She made the determination of what she would have because she began to say, now remember, Jesus identified and defined the God kind of faith as whosoever shall say unto the mountain or the problem or the sickness or the disease. Whosoever shall say unto the mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and shall not doubt in her heart, but shall believe that the things that she says will come to pass, she'll have whatsoever she said. Well, that's what she got, isn't it? She got exactly what she said. Well, the story continues. Jesus finds out. She comes in and admits what's going on. Jesus looked around about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Now, it's interesting to me that Jesus did not credit the healing power of God as being the, the major emphasis here. He did not say, Well, lady, you're sure lucky that you tapped into the power of God. No, rather, Jesus credits the faith of the woman. He credits the woman's faith as being the active agent that made the healing power that Jesus was anointed with hers for the effect or the result of healing for her body. Well, then we have to make a conclusion then. We have to draw a conclusion from this story. And that is what she said. Remember what happened when she heard of Jesus she came in the press behind for she said, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. What she said had to be her faith speaking. Because Jesus identifies that her faith made her whole. So what she said was her faith speaking. What you say is your faith speaking too. What I say is my faith speaking too. Now, I want you to understand something about this. 
And whereas we look at this story, and it's a great story. I love the details of the story because it helps us understand how we can stand in faith and reach out and take hold of what belongs to us just like she did. But Jesus doesn't credit this as being some unusual manifestation of faith. Jesus doesn't look at this as some great faith. He says, daughter, your faith has made you whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. But this seems to just be, in his estimation, this seems to be run-of-the-mill general faith. This seems to be the kind of faith that he would expect from the ministry that he's engaged in, the anointing, including the healing power of God that's upon him. Now, there are two times in Jesus' ministry where he identifies somebody as having great faith. Let's look at those real briefly. Look with me over to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. It says, And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lies at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion, which is the Roman captain, he's a captain of a, an army of a uh, hundred the centurion answered and said Lord I am not worthy that thou should come under my roof but speak the word only and my servant shall be healed for I am a man under authority having soldiers under me and I say to this man go and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my servant do this and he does it when Jesus heard this he marveled and said to them that followed verily I say unto you I have not found so great faith no not in Israel I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. What was it about this man's faith that made it great in Jesus' estimation? Well, the thing that Jesus, uh, the thing that the story tells us about the man is that he understood from whatever he heard about Jesus, whatever he had heard about Jesus being a healer, whatever he heard about Jesus delivering people, whatever he heard, he recognized from what he heard, again, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. It identified to him because of his life experience and the people that were under his charge and under his command. He recognized that for Jesus to heal the sick, he had to have authority over sickness and disease. And because his place in the Roman army was such that it was a matter of authority he had people that he had authority over and there were people over him that had authority over him he understood that if Jesus had that authority over sickness and disease then it wasn't necessary for a physical touch because authority is exercised through words so his position was speak the word only I don't need you to come to my house I don't need my servant to touch your clothes it's not necessary for there to be a physical presence Jesus' physical presence. Now, folks, think about this. Who would turn down Jesus coming to your house? If Jesus said, I'll come to your house, most people would just say, well, whatever I was planning, and we'll go with your plan instead. But this guy was different. This guy said, I understand authority. I understand that the only way that you're able to heal and deliver people is because you have authority over sickness and disease. So speak the word only and my servant will be healed. Speak the word only and my servant will be healed. The thing that made Jesus marvel at this man's faith and, and identified as great faith was that the power was in the words of the one who had authority over sickness. 
the power, the healing power of God was contained in the words of the one who had authority over sickness and disease. Folks, that was true then and it's still true today. That's why Paul said the gospel, the good news of Jesus is the power of God unto salvation, unto healing, unto deliverance, unto rescue. The word of God is sufficient, well sufficient in power to heal the flesh of any and everybody that comes to him. So Jesus marvels. He said, I haven't found so great faith, no, not in Israel. The thing that he's marveling at is the man's understanding that the word of God is the power of God. Jesus himself, in and of himself, was not the power of God. Now that brings us to another point that we have to consider. And that is in Philippians chapter 2, the Bible says Jesus emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory. The power that he had and the glory that he had with the Father before the worlds began. He laid that aside to come to the earth and be found in fashion as a human being. He laid all that aside. One way, one way that we know that in confirming scripture is when Jesus is praying in John chapter 17. Just before he's taken into custody by the Roman soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus is praying unto the Father... John, by the Holy Ghost, gives us some insight into what he prayed. And one of the things he prayed was that after he finished the work of salvation, the work of redemption, after he went to the cross and was raised again from the dead, he says, give me back the power that I had with you before the worlds began. Well, if he's asking God to give it back to him, then he must not have it while he was here on the earth. See, so many people have the mistaken idea that because Jesus was the Son of God, he just indiscriminately or abstractly healed whoever he wanted to heal because he was the son of God he was God here on the earth well he was God here on the earth but he had laid aside his power and glory to be found in fashion as a man that's why it was so important when Jesus entered into his earthly ministry to be baptized by John in the Jordan River you remember the story of how Jesus comes to John who's baptizing in the Jordan River and he says I have need to be baptized of thee. John knows who he is, though. And he says, this should be the other way around. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus said, suffer it to be so now that the Scripture be fulfilled. And the Bible tells us that everybody that was there saw what happened. First, there was a voice from heaven, the voice of God the Father, who said, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Then it says the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. It doesn't mean the Holy Ghost was a bird. It means everybody saw something come from heaven, land on Jesus, and stay, which was the anointing of God. From that time, Jesus began to preach. And as we see in Luke chapter 4, the first message that he preached in Nazareth would be the same first message he preached everywhere else he went that was new. And he began to preach and to say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. And then he tells what he's anointed to do, to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, the year of Jubilee, in other words, the year of restoration. He began to preach that. He began to say, this is what Isaiah prophesied. It, in our Bibles, it's Isaiah 61.1. He began to say, this is talking about me. This is what I'm anointed to do. Well, Jesus was just as much the Son of God at age 29 as he was at age 30, wasn't he? Jesus was just as much the Son of God the day before he was baptized by John in the Jordan River as the day that it happened, wasn't he? 
Well, if Jesus is doing healing works and miracles because he's the son of God, why did they have to wait till he was anointed of the Holy Ghost? If he had the power in and of himself, why did he wait? He certainly would have been able to in most people's idea or most people's understanding. But the fact is he didn't have any more power as a human being than you and I would until he was anointed by the Holy Ghost. Now think of it like this, folks. If Jesus hadn't emptied himself, how could he, as the Son of God, be anointed with the Holy Ghost? Who's going to anoint God? But if Jesus had emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory, as the Bible tells us he did, if he emptied himself of that heavenly power and glory, then God's going to have to give him an anointing, a measure of the Holy Ghost upon him to be able to accomplish the, the supernatural works and the miraculous works that God has intended for him to do. Can you understand that? That is so important. Because if we don't understand that Jesus was healing as a man who was anointed of God, then we're not going to be able to have a clear understanding of how to receive from God ourselves. See, when Jesus said, the work that I do shall you do also, that can't be possible unless he had emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory and come to the earth. Because who's going to do the same works and even greater works than the Son of God if that was the foundation for which he was doing these things? But thank God it wasn't. Thank God it wasn't. When Jesus was anointed of the Holy Ghost, then we see the healing power of God being made manifest to those that come to him. And as we've seen in these two examples already, the woman with the issue of blood, she activated the power of God that was on Jesus, the healing anointing that was on Jesus, by saying from her heart what she believed. If I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. If I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. The centurion said, speak the word only. And my servant will be healed. Now, folks, this story is important for a couple of reasons, but let's talk about one of them for just a moment. And that is, if Jesus was still on the earth, if Jesus was still anointed here on the earth, then it would be a simple thing just to get to where he is and everybody could receive their healing. But Jesus is not still here on the earth, but his word is. And the centurion's recognition that the word is the power. The word of God. The word spoken by Jesus. We don't know who the centurion thought Jesus was. Did he think that he was the Messiah? Maybe. Was that necessary for him to think or to believe? Apparently not. He doesn't say anything about Jesus being the Messiah or believing that he is. He just simply says, if you have authority over sickness and disease, then your words will reach to my house and you don't have to come. And Jesus says, this is greater faith than I found in Israel. The implication is he expects to find this kind of faith among the Israelites, but he didn't. But he found it in this Jewish and this Gentile soldier in the Roman army. Now look with me to another example where Jesus identifies great faith. Look to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 21, it says, Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. This is not in Judea. This is in Gentile territory that's very near to the border of, of uh, Israel. But he's in Gentile territory. Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon, 
And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. She knows something about Jesus, doesn't she? She's just not indiscriminately going out asking anybody to heal her daughter because that wouldn't make sense. Nobody else would be expected to have healing or delivering power. But when she hears of Jesus, she identifies, she comes to a conclusion of who she thinks he is. When she calls him the son of David, that's a messianic term. She's saying, I believe you're the Messiah. She identified her faith in the fact that he was sent from God to be the Savior of the world. So she cries out and says, have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David, for my daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. He didn't even respond. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, send her away, for she cries after us. Now, we've all, all, uh, already heard, and the Scripture identifies one thing that she said. Have mercy on me, O, uh, o Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But the next verse tells us or implies to us that she doesn't let up. Just because Jesus didn't answer her, she didn't turn back. She continues to cry out. I don't know if she's crying out the same thing over and over again. But whatever she's doing is making enough noise to annoy the, the disciples. And so the, the disciples, who at this point in time in Jesus' ministry are primarily responsible for crowd control, turn it back on Jesus and saying, you're going to have to get rid of her. We can't shut her up. That implies she tried and, that they tried and failed. So his disciples came and besought him, saying, send her away, for she cries after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, he's saying, I'm not here for the Gentiles yet. Now we know that through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the sacrifice was made for the sins of the world, not just the sins of Israel. But Jesus was slain from the foundations of the world, first to be made known unto the Jews, and after that the Gentiles. And so Jesus is simply talking about timing. He's simply talking about the phase of ministry that he's in. He says, I'm not sent into Gentile territory to heal the Gentiles. Apparently, he was get, trying to get away from the crowds. And that's the reason why he went into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Because you never find him ministering in any significant way outside of the boundaries of Israel. Because he was sent first to the Jews. And so that's what he's saying. He's saying, I can't help you, lady. I'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm not sent to the Gentiles. Well, that would be discouraging. First, you've been discouraged because Jesus didn't answer you when you came to him. Now, when he does finally respond, he says, I can't help you. Then she came and worshiped him saying, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. But he answered her and said, it is not meet or right or appropriate to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. Now, I want you to understand something, folks. Healing is identified by Jesus in this statement as the children's bread. In other words, healing was available as far as Jesus was concerned. And Jesus was here on the earth doing the will of God. Everything he did was the will of God. If he ever stepped out of the will of God in any way whatsoever, then that's sin. And he becomes an unworthy sacrifice for the sins of mankind. So Jesus is identifying that healing and deliverance belongs to the children of Israel. Well, let's stop there and think about that for a moment. If Jesus said unequivocally, without hesitation, 
that healing and deliverance was something that belonged to the Israelites or the children of Abraham, then that has to belong to us too. Because the Bible says in Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Go back to Deuteronomy 28 and look at the curse of the law, and it's chock full of sickness and disease, different sicknesses and different diseases. And then it uh, summarizes it by saying, also every other sickness and disease not mentioned in this book of the law will come upon you through disobedience. So all sickness and disease is identified as a part of the curse of the law. So when Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. It goes on to tell us why. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. This children's bread that he identifies as including sickness and disease, or healing and deliverance rather from sickness and disease. This thing that he identifies is the blessing of Abraham. And the Bible says because of what Jesus did on the cross as our substitute, it belongs to you and me too. No exceptions, no qualifications, it simply belongs to us. So he says it's not right to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. Now that's an insult. It's a common insult and it doesn't mean there's any animosity behind what he, what he said. But the Jews considered themselves the chosen people of God, rightly so, God did choose them. But they considered everybody else as dogs. They considered themselves as God's favorite and everybody else is not. So when he says it's not meat or right or appropriate to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs, he's insulting her. But she doesn't take the insult. She said, truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is your faith. And her daughter was made whole. Oh, I'm sorry. Great is your faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Now we saw what, had, what Jesus identified as great faith to the centurion in Matthew chapter 8. What is he identifying as great faith on the part of this Gentile woman? That gains her access to the healing and delivering power of God. Even before it was intended to be available for the Gentiles. She wouldn't give up. She simply wouldn't give up. She pled her case based on what Jesus said. When Jesus first heard her say, Have mercy on me, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. Jesus doesn't stop and say, Oh, finally I found somebody that knows who I am. He doesn't answer a thing. She doesn't give up. She keeps crying after him. She keeps following them and crying after them. Them meaning Jesus and his disciples. Finally, Jesus does answer her and said, I'm not sent to the lost, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, he's saying, this doesn't belong to you now. That'd be, she's had at least two opportunities to be very discouraged and offended. Wouldn't you agree? But she doesn't take offense. She comes and says, Lord, help me. I want you to notice something that she has faith in. She has faith in the mercy and the compassion of God. Because if she believes what she identifies by what she says, if she believes Jesus is the Messiah, then she has to have some kind of understanding about the mercy and the compassion of God.
So she worships and she says, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Now, folks, Jesus was the manifestation of God's will here in the earth. In other words, everything that we see Jesus doing, Jesus even said this to his disciples. He said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. That means every act of mercy and compassion that we see in Jesus during his earthly ministry is exactly the, the same compassion that he and God the Father have now in our day. He wasn't more compassionate. God wasn't more compassionate for the people that came to Jesus when he was here on the earth than the people that live on the earth now. It's all the same as far as God's concerned. He has compassion on everybody. And Jesus could not resist the woman saying, Lord, help me. Every time she refuses to be offended, every time she refuses the insult, she's softening Jesus little by little by little by little. Finally, when Jesus says, it's not right, I understand, I'm sorry, but it's not right to take the children's bread, the healing and deliverance that belongs to the children of Abraham, or the, the seed of Abraham, and give it to the Gentiles. She uses his words as her own defense. She says, Lord, even the dogs that eat, eat the crumbs from the master's table. I don't mind being called a dog because I know who you are and I know the compassion of the one who sent you. And Jesus can't resist that. Folks, I want you to get this. Jesus, acting in God's stead, performing the will of God here on the earth, could not turn away the woman that wouldn't give up. And he marvels and said, Woman, great is your faith. Be it unto you even as you believed. And her daughter was healed. Her daughter was healed. So great faith accepts the word of God as the only thing that's necessary to be healed or delivered. And great faith won't give up. Wouldn't it be ideal, folks, if we had some kind of handbook that was the last chapter of the Bible in some way or another telling us how long we'd have to stand in faith for different diseases? Skin cancer, you're going to have to stand in faith for three months. Lung cancer is going to take eight months. Leukemia is a big one. It's going to take over a year. Wouldn't it be helpful if we knew ahead of time what we were in for? But if we knew it wouldn't be a, an operation of faith, we'd be going by what we see and feel. I remember not too long ago, well, it's been five or six years ago now maybe, but I remember somebody came out with some kind of teaching about fasting. They said that they had a special revelation from God about fasting and that if you fasted a certain amount of days for each sickness and disease, then it would cover you and you'd enter into his healing. Very similar to what we just identified before, only this way it was fasting. Neurological disorders took a 21-day fast. Cancer, lung cancer took a 30-day fast and that kind of stuff. And I remember hearing it at the time, and there were people that were excited about it and all that kind of stuff. And I remember at the time thinking, how do they know? Is there somebody that had these diseases that just went on the experimentation trail and saw how long that it took? It was just ridiculous. But people who weren't grounded in the word looking for something other than the word bought into it. And it caused harm for a lot of people. Folks, God cannot resist. 
the faith that speaks the word only. Not like he's trying to. It pleases God when we stand in faith. And God can't resist somebody that won't give up. If we incorporate those characteristics in our faith, nothing can stop us from receiving. If you recognize that the word of God is the power of God and the word of God spoken in and of itself, Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes we are healed. If we recognize that that word has enough and even more than enough power to bring us into divine health, no matter how long it takes, no matter what obstacles arise, no matter what symptoms occur, or what we feel or think about any of the things that took place or take place when, after we start believing God. If we take the position that we just won't give up because the word of God is true, the devil doesn't have enough power to enforce sickness and disease over us. He just doesn't. Jesus identifies these as great faith. As I said, the woman with the issue of blood, he didn't say her faith was great. Doesn't mean it wasn't. But the implication is she operated under just normal, ordinary faith. Where did she get the faith that she operated in? When she heard of Jesus. When she heard of Jesus. She came in the press behind for she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And the healing power of God went out of Jesus into her, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And after 12 years of suffering many things at the hands of physicians, along with spending everything that she had for those doctors and physicians to help her, now she stands strong, she stands tall, healed from every trace of every symptom of the issue of blood. All because she believed that Jesus was the healer, all because she believed that he was anointed to heal her body. Well, I believe that too, don't you? I believe from the word of God that Jesus did take our infirmities and bear our sicknesses. And with his stripes, we were healed. Well, if we were healed, that means I am. If we were healed, that means you are. That means present tense. Even now, in the mind of God, you are healed because Jesus paid the price. The price that was necessary to bring healing and deliverance to you and me. So what should we do? Speak the word only. If we're going to have the same kind of faith as the centurion. And not give up. No matter what. If we're going to have the faith of the Syrophoenician woman. I don't know about you but I'd like God to look at me and marvel. And say what great faith I've found. That'd be a lot better than him showing up and saying well why wouldn't you believe? Everything Jesus did, he encouraged his disciples to be faith-filled instead of faithless. Everything that he did incited the people that he was around to believe in God, to believe in God's goodness, to believe in his mercy. Well, how do we know when we believe? If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to the mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea. And it should obey you and nothing will be impossible unto you. That's the way he said it in Matthew chapter 17. Faith speaks. The fight of faith, therefore, is one and only one thing. And that is hold fast the profession of your faith. 
Everything the devil does, every circumstance he brings to you, every pain, everything that he brings is designed to do one and only one thing, and that is to change what you say, to get you speaking something other than the word of God, to take you out of the position of the centurion, speak the word only and my servant will be healed, speak the word only and I will be healed. He's after your words. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. You remember where we started in Mark eleven twenty-three, where Jesus said, And shall not doubt in his heart? Shall not doubt in his heart? Doubting in your heart is speaking contrary to or against the word of God. It's speaking according to what you see and feel rather than what the word says. And that's the one area, the main area, that the devil is always going to try to attack us. We need to be, like Paul said, where we're not ignorant of his devices. His devices, his scheme, his plan is to create such a distraction in your life or in your body, in your circumstances, in your situation, so that you speak against what God's word says. Because if he can get you to speak against God's word, he can rob you of everything the Bible says is ours. That's the fight of faith. The fight of faith is to maintain your profession or your confession of faith. Look at the woman with the, the uh, Syrophoenician woman, rather, in Mark chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 15. She wouldn't give up. She wouldn't change what she came for. She wouldn't quit until she got it. And Jesus marvels and says, woman, great is your faith. Well, if she can have great faith and not even be saved, imagine what we can have since God's given us the measure of faith. And that the fact is that we can build and increase our faith by meditating in the Word of God. The Syrophoenician woman's faith should be an easy thing for us in comparison because we've got the life of God within us. She wouldn't give up, and that pleased God. So much so that she received what she came for. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we bless your name. We exalt you. We magnify you. We worship you, Lord Jesus, as our healer. We thank you, Lord, that you took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And with your stripes, we were healed. And if we were healed when you took those things upon yourself and shed your blood to pay the price for them, then how much more are we healed now who live in the better day where we're not servants of God but children, sons and daughters of God, if healing belonged to the children, if healing was part of the children's bread in the old covenant, how much more does healing belong to us now? So, Lord, we count it all joy. No matter what we're going through, no matter what we face, we count it joy, knowing this, that the trying of our faith works patience. And as we let patience have its perfect work, we shall be perfect and entire, healed from the top of our heads to the soles of our feet. That healing power, that healing work, will rise up from within us because the Holy Ghost, the very Spirit of God, the very life of God himself, dwells within our hearts, our spirits. And that Spirit of God, that life of God, quickens our mortal bodies. So we bless you, Father. We'll not give up. We'll not turn away. We'll not cast away our confidence. For our confidence is in you, and your word says that it has great recompense of reward. So we'll hold fast.
no matter what comes, no matter what thoughts may bombard our mind, no matter what circumstances do, whether things seem to get better or things seem to get worse, our faith is in you, Lord, and our confession is what your word says. So we thank you, Father, for watching over your word to perform it, for restoring us to divine health, and for healing our wounds. In Jesus' precious name, if you can agree with that, say amen. 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 Well, God bless you, folks. Thanks for being with us. Well, then we would have to understand that that would mean a lot more people were healed than what we have record of. But in these 19 individual cases of healing or healing events, it must be a complete picture. The information contained in those 19 individual cases must give us a full and complete picture of the healing ministry of Jesus, which means that as many of the other people that aren't recorded might have been healed they were not healed in such a different manner or otherwise so that the, the Bible provides for us a complete picture. Now, of those 19 individual cases of healing in the four Gospels, 13 of them specifically, the healing that came to them was credited to their faith. Now, if Jesus, we know also that when Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth, this is recorded in Luke chapter 4 and Mark chapter 6, when Jesus went to his own hometown in Nazareth, the Bible says that he could there do no mighty work. He went into the town proclaiming that he was anointed to heal. He had already been to Capernaum and done many signs and wonders in Capernaum. Because when he's talking to the people, he says, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that you want me to perform the same miracles and the same healings that you heard of me in Capernaum. Well, if he had to have already been there and had to have already performed healings and miracles but they wouldn't believe they refused to believe because they thought they knew him they thought they knew where he was from because he grew up as a little boy in the town of Nazareth they thought they knew everything about him they didn't see anything special about him to just